listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You can be seated. Again, my name is Clint. Uh, our campus pastor, Mark Kirkendall, he is with that team in Nicaragua. They're training some pastors. Uh, that is an ongoing relationship that Bethel has where we send a team about twice a year uh, to t- train a group of pastors that are all bivocational uh, and with very little access to theological training. And so we send teams regularly there. So please be in prayer uh, for them. But I'm super excited to be with you this morning. I've been very excited to talk through this passage and learn about this passage together for a long time because it's a story that's very familiar and it's a story though that is really really powerful and I, as i began reading earlier this week i was reminded of something me and my wife did just a couple years ago it was our 10th wedding anniversary and to us that was a big deal some of y'all have done 10 and then 10 and then 10 and then 10 and then 10 but man we thought that was a great thing we were excited and so we said hey let's plan a big trip let's take a vacation and so we did some research and we decided to go to costa rica And y'all, let me tell you, that was a good decision. That was a good decision on our part. Uh, One of the most memorable things that happened, though, was on the very first day. It was our travel day. And we flew out of Houston, so we drove down to Houston, you know, waited in the airport for a while, as you do, got on a plane, flew for a while, got off the plane. And the town we were going to was actually a couple-hour drive from the airport. And so we had this taxi. It drove us another few hours from the airport to this town. And it had been a long day. We'd woken up early, and we were hungry. We were, all, we were getting hangry. We were on the verge of hangry. And so I asked the drivers, like, hey, man, we'd love to stop and get something to eat. Now, here's the deal, guys. I love trying new food. And so I told this driver, I said, hey, don't take us to just a tourist trap. We want to go where the locals eat. We want to go to, like, where you eat, okay? He says, no problem. I got you. So we drive for a while. And, you know, y'all, I don't, I don't really know what I was expecting exactly. Uh, I was thinking, hey, we're close to the ocean. Maybe there's some seafood. You know, there's lots of tropical fruits, maybe some plantains, some papayas. You know, we're driving past these, like, pineapple fields, all this stuff. So I'm like, hey, maybe some of that. Uh, so we drive for about an hour, and we hit this little town, and the driver starts to pull over. He says, hey, we're going to this spot. I go here all the time. You'll love it. And I'm excited because, y'all, there's not a tourist in this town, I promise. Nobody stops in this town. And he, there's just this one little street with some shops, a couple parking spots. Man, he pulls in that parking spot. He hops out. We hop out, and I look up, and what's right in front of me is a fried chicken shack. <laughs> Same you get a dozen places here in town. And this dry, driver's excited. He's, he, like, runs in. He's ready for fried chicken. He loves fried chicken. And, y'all, it was really good fried chicken. I love fried chicken, too, okay? Who doesn't? Went in there and had fried chicken. But I could not believe. Y'all, that I had driven for a few hours, then flown for a few hours, then waited for a few hours, then driven for a few more hours to get something I could get just down the road. I was kind of disappointed. Turns out, y'all, fried chicken is universal. You can find it anywhere. On the story today, y'all, Jesus is going to take a journey, a journey to a very different place than where he is from. But you know what? He's going to find something universal. He's going to find something even more universal than fried chicken. What he's going to find is a universal, pervasive need for grace. You know, last week we looked at Nicodemus, who was the quintessential Pharisee, the guy with the highest reputation, 
the most religious man who kept all the rules, did all the things, had everyone's respect. He was the most spiritual man anyone knew. And he answered the question for us, can I be so good that I don't need God's grace? Of course, we found out that answer is no. Here's this man who was doing all the right things, and he is going to find Jesus in the middle of the night because he knows there has to be something more. Well, this week, Jesus is going to travel to a very different place, a place called Samaria. And he's going to meet the Samaritan woman who is the exact opposite of Nicodemus in every conceivable way. And this story is going to ask the question, can I be so bad I can't get grace? How many times can I try and fail before God just gives up on me? Is there anywhere I can go that God's grace can't reach me? Turn your Bibles to John chapter 4, and let's read. We're going to start in verse 3. It says, He, that's Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Now let me stop right here. Uh, I'm curious, are there any fellow nerds like me in the house? Okay, we got a couple. We all, this next few minutes is for us, okay? We're going to have maps. We're going to talk about history. All you non-nerds, just give us a couple minutes to nerd out, and then we can all reconvene here in a couple minutes, okay? So, uh, John, the writer, he is very specific about where Jesus goes. Not only here's the town, but he tells us a lot about it. But notice, he doesn't place the town uh, directionally. He doesn't say he heads north for so many miles. He hangs left at the big rock, you know, 30 paces this way. There he is. No, he places it historically. He tells us, you know, Jacob's well was there, his field. And you can go. You can go read Genesis 33, there's this field that Jacob buys and then he offers to his son as an inheritance. And then you fast forward to Joshua 24, and Jacob's bones are buried in that field. He's saying this is a very historical, holy site to the Jews. This is where their forefathers are buried. This is where God led their forefathers way back in the times of Genesis. But Jesus says this thing that had not been said in a long, long time. He says, I need to go to Samaria. Y'all, no good Jew living in Jesus' time needed to go to Samaria. That's like saying, I need to dive into a sewage tank. No, you really don't. That's not going to go well for you. In fact, they did everything they can. They said, I need to avoid Samaria and go way out of my way to do so. Let me show you a map real quick. So we have a map where Jesus is going. He's starting down here at the bottom on the south, and he's headed north to the Sea of Galilee. It's that little, you know, dom-shaped body of water at the very top. And you can see there's a direct route to, the, to Galilee, and it goes right through Samaria, right through this town of Sychar. But that's not where most Jews went. Most Jews took the route to your right. And so what they would do is they would head east, cross the Jordan River, then head north, cross back over the Jordan. What are they doing? They're going way out of their way to avoid Samaria. Why would they do that? If that's the place where Jacob is buried and means so much to him, why would they do that? Well, a little history. So back, way back when, back uh, in the first five books of the Old Testament, man, Israel was one nation. They were one people. They were God's people. But they said, hey, we want some kings. All the other nations have kings. God says, that's not going to go well for you. And they said, no, 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 we really want them. God says, have fun with that. And so they make it through three kings before civil war breaks out. 
Solomon's the third king, and then his sons, y'all, they're evil, they're a bunch of wackadoos, they're crazy, and they split the kingdom into civil, civil war into a northern and southern kingdom. That northern kingdom is Samaria. And y'all, for years, generations, they never have a good king. They never have a godly king. Just a bunch of wackadoos, one after the other. That's all they get. And so finally God judges them. But even before that, they started separating from what God had revealed. And so, you know, God had set up his temple in Jerusalem and told people to worship there. But they said, hey, those are our enemies now. We don't really want to go to Jerusalem anymore, so we're going to set up our own temple. And so they did. In a place called Mount Gerizim that overlooks this town and this well where Jesus is. It would have been right there. And they said, you know what? There's some of these books of Scripture that we don't really like. And so they only read and only followed the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't read the history books, the poetry, the prophets, because those talk a lot about Jerusalem and how to worship God and to repent if you're not. And that didn't really sound very good to them. So they just did away with the other books. And so finally, God judges them. He sends the nation of Assyria to come capture them, send them into exile. And so what Assyria did is when they conquered a people, they wanted to completely erase the world with their culture. And so they did it a couple ways. First, they would take a bunch of you, and they would ship you off back to Assyria. And you would be expected to assimilate into that and forsake all your worship and all the ways you understood God and all the ways you did life. But the other thing they did was they would get a bunch of other foreign people they, would, they had conquered and would plant them into your old house. And that's what they did. And so, y'all, for the next hundreds of years, that area essentially became a blender that just stayed on and blended all these different types of gods, all these different types of worship, all these different values, all these different ways of doing life. And so by Jesus' time, y'all, this place is essentially a spiritual no-man's land. You know how far apart they were? This is amazing to me. So eventually the southern kingdom, they would be judged, they would go into captivity too, but this was a miracle. God sent a remnant back to rebuild his temple, just as he had promised he would do. So a few Jews come back to rebuild the temple. You know who opposes them? The Samaritans. The Samaritans oppose the rebuilding of God's temple. That's how far apart they are. So this place, to a Jew... Is ethnically polluted, it is religiously idolatrous, it is morally corrupt. No good Jew says, I have to go through Samaria. All right, nerd out over. Everyone else, join, it, join in. Let's pick it up. Into verse 6. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. See, this is exactly what the Jews were worried about. You go tramping through this place, and next thing you know, you find yourself in a really awkward encounter by yourself with a very morally unclean person. We find out this woman, she's coming to draw water at noon. It says the sixth hour. They started counting the hours at sunrise. So the first hour is about 6 a.m. Sixth hour is about noon. Y'all, they live in the desert. That's the hottest part of the day. Nobody in their right mind went to get water in the hottest part of the day. You had to carry a bucket with you. A lot of translations say bucket. Really what it was was probably a big leather pouch that held about five gallons of water. So you have to tramp out a couple miles in the hottest part of the day into the desert, lower it down a couple hundred feet, pull 40 pounds of water out, and carry that 40 pounds of water back to your home. Nobody would want to do that. So back in those days, if you were the top of the food chain, uh, you didn't go get your own water. You had people to do that for you. But the common folk, What they would do is they would go early, before it got too hot, 
and they would go in groups for reasons of safety, for reasons of propriety. Now, there's only one reason. You show up at a well out in the middle of the desert in the middle of the day. It's because you are avoiding everyone else. Or probably better said, everyone else avoids you. This woman was an outcast among outcasts. Jesus Jesus has traveled to Samaria and found the person that even the immoral people think is too immoral. And we're about to find out why. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus walks up to her, says, give me a drink. Y'all, this is the moment when the Jews reading this would have spit their water all over the Bible. Whoa, what? Give me a drink. Okay, picture this. So the woman can go to her cabinet, pull out a glass for Jesus, you know, fill it up and hand it to her. There's one bucket there between the two of them. He's essentially saying, hey, give me a drink out of your bucket with your water. Y'all, I don't like my own kids to drink after each other, okay? Jews had a saying, to drink after Samaritan was to drink after swine. For them, it was the equivalent of take a cup of water, let a pig take a drink, and then you take a big old swig. Which, on the one hand, is gross. Pigs are disgusting. On the second hand, would have made you religiously unclean because they didn't eat pigs. Pigs were unclean. That's what it would have meant to share a drink with this Samaritan woman. And so this woman asks a very valid question. She asks the same question everyone would have been asking. How is it? How is it that you ask me for a drink? You know what she's really asking? She's really asking, how is it that you think you and I can have a relationship? Because I don't know what rock you've been living under, but you're clean and I'm unclean. And any interaction we have together is going to tarnish you. How is it that you think that we can have a relationship? Pick it up in verse 10. Let's see what Jesus says. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, y'all, when Jesus would have said, let me tell you, I got some living water, he has her attention. Remember, they're in the desert. When you're in the desert, water is a matter of life and death. Your whole life, your whole day, every day revolves around you getting water. Because every day, you're going to wake up really, really thirsty. And every day, water was very, very scarce. In fact, the only place they could go to get it was a well like this, a couple miles out, in stagnant water, way deep down, that you had to work very, very hard to get. That's the only water you could count on, she thought. So when he says living water, that referred to in those days a river. Or in this area, they didn't have any rivers above surface, a spring, like a river underground that was a steady, reliable, always flowing supply of fresh water. And they called it living water because, you know, when you, when you see these, one of these springs would come up to the surface, life springs up all around it. And so you would see 
in the middle of a desert, a little area with some trees and some flowers and some grass, the only signs of life for miles to come. That's why they called it living water. And so when he says, hey, I've got a source of living water, it's like saying, guys, I got a tree that grows money. You're not going to have to work so hard for all the stuff you need anymore. It's going to be freely available and abundant. And obviously she's skeptical. Verse 11, I mean, she's trying to think very practically about all this. She says she knows that only the, the only springs we have are way deep underground. In fact, Jacob's well, it had been there since the time of Jacob. Y'all, it is still there to this day. You can see, go still see it because deep beneath the well, it's fed by a spring. It's fed by living water that keeps that steady water supply. And she's saying, hey, Jacob, he's like the best man that ever lived, and he worked really hard, and the best he could do was get us this stagnant, stagnant well water a couple hundred feet down. How on earth are you going to go so deep into the I don't see an excavator. In fact, you don't have anything with you. But no, so no offense, but I am pretty skeptical. Skeptical. Have you been there? In a desert, not only dying of thirst, but losing hope of ever finding any living water. Thinking what I need, maybe even the God's grace that I need is way too deep down there for any of you to be able to help me. He answers by saying, you know what? If he knew who I was, you wouldn't ask if I was able. You would know. Because I created you. I even created Jacob. There is nowhere I can't go. There is nothing that you need that I cannot provide for you. Let's keep going. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So this is the woman's first sign, y'all, that you and I may not be talking about the same thing. Because Jesus is talking about spiritual. She's been talking about merely physical. And then he starts talking about this water, unlike any physical water she's ever heard of. It's, it's water that doesn't just satisfy temporarily. It's water that puts an end to your thirst. It's water that will give you life, not just for the next few hours, but eternally, eternal life. You know, it's water that doesn't just come from a well out there. It's wa- water that springs up from inside you. It's not any physical water that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about something else. And the woman, she's interested, but she's not quite tracking yet. Verse 15, she's, she says, you mean, wait a minute, you have, she's thinking you have another uh, spring, a uh, living water, so I won't have to come here anymore. That's all she wants. I, I would love to not have to come here anymore. Why? Because every day of her life, she cannot avoid her thirst. She has to deal with her thirst, and yet it forces her to face her shame, her isolation, her loneliness every day from the middle of the day. You know what the woman's question really is here? Can you free me from my shame? Can you free me from the daily bondage of my past decisions? Because that's what I'm living in every day. Jesus says, absolutely, but not the way you think. 
The woman is a lot like us. This is how we are, thinking her greatest needs are out there, not in here. And so we look for out there solutions. Even when we're dealing with God, we think, hey, if God would just fix a few things out there, that's what I need. And so if God could get this person out of my life, or if he could change my job, or my school, or my house, or my family, or whatever it is, if he could just change those things, and man, maybe finally I could get my thirst quenched. Maybe I could find some peace. Maybe I could end this loneliness and, and this isolation. And Jesus says to her, you underestimate my grace. You know how powerful my grace is? It's so powerful, it's not going to change the circumstances out there. It's going to change you in here. That's how powerful my grace is. Verse 16, let's keep going. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Well, now we're getting down to business, aren't we? Jesus is meeting her at this physical well to point out her spiritual wells. And you need to know, y'all, throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, a well is a symbol of idolatry. It's the places we go, other than God, to find peace, meaning, exhilaration, safety, whatever it is we think we need that will quench our thirst. And so all throughout Scripture, God is saying things like what we find in Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, it's the same language, and hewed, that means dug out, cisterns or wells for themselves. Here's a problem. They are broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is telling his people here, even back in Jeremiah, I created you to have a relationship with me. I'm the one who can satisfy your thirst. But instead of coming to me, here's what you do. You look for all this this supply of water out there and you go dig your own wells. And when, not if, but when those wells eventually fail you, you just go dig another one and find another one instead of coming to me. And that's what this woman had done. Y'all forget three strikes are out. She had gotten five strikes and she's swinging and missing right now. That's what we find out. Y'all, here's what's unbelievable about this. This is what's stunning. Put your jaw on the floor about this. Jesus already knew everything about her. And he knew everything about her back in verse 4 when he said, I have to go to Samaria. I've got an appointment there that I've got to be at. And you know what? He knows everything about you too. Everything. He knows things I don't know. Your spouse doesn't know. Your parents don't know. He knows it all. And he still pursues you. Because here's the deal. This journey from Judea to Samaria is nothing. It is nothing compared to a much larger journey he had already made from heaven to earth for you. He left heaven and he came here where we are, having already known everything about you. So can you be so bad you can't get grace? Not a chance. Jesus is saying, I knew everything about you, and I still pursued you. So the woman responds in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. No joke. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem 
is a place where people ought to worship. And y'all, I kind of love this. I love it. Jesus is so patient with us. See, just when her attention, the spotlight, gets to kind of be turned on herself, she does the exact same thing all of us do from the time we're kids and learn how to first talk, divert attention. So you go to little Johnny and you say, little Johnny, why did you hit your sister? And little Johnny says, well, she, here's the list. Don't look at me. Look over here, right? That's what she's doing. You know, it's not to say it's not an honest question. It is an honest question. It's a theological, religious question, and sometimes we have some of those, and, and that's okay. But she's using it the way we use it so many times, as emotional armor to protect ourselves and cover ourselves up. And isn't that true? Y'all, isn't it so much easier so many times to talk about doctrine or religious ritual to avoid exposing our own heart? Absolutely. So Jesus, and he's so gracious with her, he is going to answer her question. He is. But in a way that tells her there's so much more. So much more. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What Jesus essentially tells her is, let me tell you the type of relationship you and I can have together. I'm going I'm to give you the DTR, the define the relationship, and tell you what our relationship can and should be like. And it says, the type of relationship where you worship me in spirit and in truth. What does he mean by that? Well, he says, in truth. In truth, that part means according to how he has revealed himself in Scripture. And that's why he says, hey, you know, the Jews, they worship what they know. You can say whatever you want to about them, but at least they were taking what I'd revealed about myself and how I wanted to be worshipped, and they were implementing it. Man, you Samaritans, you just made up, you just picked some mountain over here, just made up some temple that you totally made up all on your own. It is not based on how I revealed myself. It's even more important you think about what we've already covered in John. John 1, where he tells us that Jesus is the full revelation of who God is. Later in the book, he'll go on to say, Jesus is the truth. So to worship him in truth means to worship him in accordance with how he has revealed himself. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is saying, he's looking at this woman and saying, listen, if you are wrong about me, that is going to affect our relationship, just as it would any relationship that you have. You know, for some of you here this morning, this may be the biggest hindrance to your relationship with Jesus, because we can be just like those Samaritans, can't we? We can pick and choose what scriptures we like and don't like. We can do that with the best of them. And so we, you know, read scriptures like, anything you ask in my name will be given. Highlight, circle, underline, star, put it on my living room. Love it. And then we get scriptures that say, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. I better look up some different translations of that. That didn't really sound great. You know what? Just like the Samaritans, we can let the culture around us 
tell us what's true. And we can take a little of this culture, take a little of this, take a little of this, and blend it with a little bit of God to get whatever we like, can't we? And you see this, you see this around you. So often, Christians' beliefs are shaped more by news, talk radio, popular culture, y'all, even people trying to sell us things than they are by what the Scriptures say. And guys, that's how you end up, even in church, with all these wells and filters. Jesus says, you know what? We're going to have a relationship based on truth. Because me being here is God revealing himself to you. You know what? Every Jew reading that would have read that and said, Amen, you tell them. They're worshiping what they don't know. We're the ones who know. Pump your brakes. Jesus said, you worship me in truth, but also in spirit. Now, this could be a, a reference to the Holy Spirit, and it probably is, at least a little bit, but that's not how the woman would have most understood what Jesus was saying in that moment. Most likely, she would have understood it to mean authentic. So one spirit was the, the core of their being. So to worship in spirit means to worship with your whole heart. It's worship that comes not just from knowledge, but from awe, from adoration of Him. It's worship that's not just routine, but it's from a relationship. It even says in verse 25, God is spirit. What she, what's, what's he saying there? I mean, it's, it's kind of the opposite of physical. Remember, her question was about location. This location or that location? A or B? And he's saying God is a spirit. You cannot confine him in his worship to one particular location. Saying, listen, worship, I could tell you A or B, but you'd miss the point. Worship isn't about picking the right place and going through all the right motions. He's saying God has always desired authentic relationship, not simply physical activity. And again, you'll find this throughout Old and New Testament, Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth, honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And Jesus would quote this exact verse when talking about the Pharisees. He's saying it's not about a place, it's a person. God is most interested in a relationship with you. So going to a place physically, repeating all the right words while keeping your heart distant, y'all, that's not a relationship. That's a chore. And that has never been the kind of worship God is seeking. And men and women, this is why you can go to church and do all the right things and it feels completely dead. Because you're trusting in a routine, not in a relationship. You're pursuing a routine, not a relationship. And y'all, we all do this to some extent. I struggle with this. And it's understandable why we struggle with this. Because we live in a culture where everywhere else we go just about, almost everywhere else we go, the way you are loved is you earn it. And so the more beautiful you are, the more love you can get. The smarter you are, the more love you can get. The more talented you are, the more love you can get. The better you can perform everywhere else, the more you can be loved. And it's so easy to apply that to God and say, okay, if I can go through all the routines, if I can do all the religion, if I can do all the right things, then God has to love me. Oh, remember what's happening here. Jesus is offering a relationship with him to a woman who long ago gave up any hope of being able to 
earn it. Not only did she give up that hope, everyone else around her had given up that hope. And he says, I will love you because of my grace, not because you picked the right mountain or the right location. And here's what's going to happen. That grace is going to be so powerful that it will change you so that you can worship me in spirit. You can worship me with authenticity. That's the kind of relationship you and I can have. So y'all, I got to tell you, I'm so thankful for this Samaritan woman. She shows that none of us, no one here is out of the reach of God's grace. And wouldn't that be a great place to end the story? Man, we got it wrapped up, nice little bow. We've all got the warm fuzzies. This is great. But that's not where John ends the story. He keeps going. And here's why. Because when God, God's grace enters, y'all, it's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. And so the few verses that follow, you know, often when you hear this story taught, we, we just end it there, but he keeps going. And the verses that follow, y'all, it's not an afterthought. It's not a prologue. It's not secondary. Here's what it is. It is a picture of what it looks like when God's people worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus has a lesson for disciples based on what the woman does, and John has a lesson for us. True worshipers. Worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth do three things. First is this. Drink the living water. It's offered to you. It's there. Drink it. And this is what the woman does. And we see in her reaction what you see throughout scriptures. Here's what you do if you want a relationship with Jesus. You confess. Y'all, confess just means agree with God about yourself. And this is what the woman did. She never argued with Jesus. He started telling her all these ugly things about herself. In fact, she's about to run into town and tell everyone there, hey, y'all all know what I do. He knows what I do too. We all know. He confesses. She confesses. She agrees with God about who she is and about herself. And the next step is this. You just believe. To believe means to agree with God about who he is. To agree with God about what he says about himself. And y'all, this last interaction with Jesus, the last words Jesus says to her, he's inviting her to do just that. And she does. And this is the moment everything changes for her. You know, she's almost afraid to ask, hey, are you the Christ? She kind of says, hey, I've heard this Messiah might be coming. Almost afraid to hope and ask directly. And Jesus says in verse 26, 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Remember, y'all, the the Samaritans, they read the first five books of the Bible. And so as soon as he said that, she would have known it was a reference to uh, Exodus chapter 3. And you may remember the story when Moses met God in the burning bush. And he asked God, hey, who do I go tell? When I go tell Pharaoh, who do I tell him that you are? He says, Yahweh, tell him I am. And Jesus looks at this woman and says, I am he. And this woman would have also known that the that Exodus says that Moses was a friend of God. What Jesus is saying to her is an invitation. Believe in me. Believe that I am that ancient of days who was in the burning bush with revealing himself to Moses. I'm now revealing myself to you today. And just like Moses became the friend of God, you can enter into a relationship with me as well. That's the invitation. Trust me. Believe in me. Believe in who I'm revealing myself to be to you. And you can do that this morning. That's how you drink the living water. That's how you stop chasing all the other wells. Look at the next thing she does. So we drink the living water, and then you drop the bucket. Drop it. Verse 28, 
So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Are you kidding me? After all this round and round and round about water, she totally forgets the bucket. Why? She doesn't need it anymore. The thirst used to drive her every day of her life, and she totally forgets the bucket. Y'all, this is important. Don't miss this. Sometimes we undersell grace. Grace is more than giving you a second chance. Grace gives you a changed life. That's the promise. That's what the Bible means when it talks about repentance. Repentance is to change direction. And so when God's grace enters your life and you enter a relationship with Him, it says you change direction. You go a different way. And when you do that, you drop the bucket. And y'all, we have such a hard time doing this sometimes, don't we? I got to tell you, there is nothing the outside world finds more confusing when we try to talk about faith than when us as the people of God claim to have living water and yet are still carrying around our buckets going to the same wells we always were and that they are. And so they look at our lives and they see us maybe trying to control our spouses, trying to control our relationships just like they are, as if those are the things that are going to quench our thirst. They see us just as materialistic, just as much keeping up with the Joneses, just as unable to be generous because we're trying to get all the same comforts and all the same things everyone else is trying to get. They see us more concerned with work demands than with the eternal work of God's kingdom. They see us, like this woman, incapable of having healthy relationships. Why? Because we're, we're just using all these relationships as our own little wells to, to do for us what only God can do. Here's what you need to know this morning. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your life is answering the question to a watching world, where can I get this living water? And here's the challenge. That is not a question you get to answer with your words. That is a question you answer with your actions and with your life. But you know what I'd be willing to bet? I'd be willing to bet everyone here knows somebody, knows at least one person, who for some reason doesn't seem to be thirsty for the same things everyone else is, doesn't seem to be chasing all the same things everyone else is, and seems to have this strange satisfaction as if, they have a well of living water inside of them. And that person, they've dropped their bucket. Even, forgot they even had it, left it, and went the other direction. Men and women, we have living water. Let's repent of our buckets. Let's drop them like this woman did. So we drink the living water. We drop the bucket. The last one doesn't start with a D. Sorry about that. We pursue people. This is immediately what she went and did. She went and pursued people. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar, went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him and skipped to verse 41. Many more people believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world the first Gentile proclamation of that truth in the whole book of John. She, she drops that bucket. And think about this. This is a woman who avoided people at all costs. And now she is going to the town, drawing a crowd to herself, inviting them, come and see. Come and see. And so not just one person. We call the story the Samaritan woman, but it becomes a story of the Samaritan town. So many more people come to 
to Jesus. And this is the lesson Jesus has for his disciples. Remember them? They were here at the beginning of the story. Well, they left, and they went to, like, get honey buns and Vienna sausages at the convenience store. And imagine their surprise when they leave Jesus alone for, like, 30 minutes, and he's in this deep conversation with a Samaritan woman. They have no idea what they've just walked into. And so they start talking about, you know, here's food. And he, Jesus like, I got food. And they're like, Where, who, who else brought him food? He said, let me help you. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is why we had to go through Samaria. This is it. My food is to do the Father's will. What's the Father's will? To seek and save the lost. That is his work. And so he's telling his disciples, listen, with the same urgency, do you seek for food when you're hungry or you seek for water when you're thirsty? That is the urgency that I have to show God's grace to those who are far off. That's my food. And so he, he switches to this uh, farming analogy. We tell them, hey, it is time for harvest. There is a harvest out there. And guess who's going to labor in that harvest? You are. He tells them in verse 38, this is the work that you have entered into, into God's harvest. He's telling them, listen, you have entered into something way bigger than just you and just your thirst. He's saying, I want you to quench the thirst of others. That's the work you've entered into. That's what he meant. Remember back in verse 14, he said, here's what happens. You drink the living water, and then you become a source of living water. Living water, the word there is leaps. It leaps and bubbles and overflows out of you. We all become walking wells, as it were. You know, this is what God's grace does. It transforms you from being thirsty to dispensing water. And I have to tell you this morning, that is the exact opposite of what our culture around you will tell you Jesus would like to do in your life. He will live in a culture, even though it's a somewhat Christian culture, that says your faith is primarily a matter of attending and consuming. But here, you know what? If you open up the scriptures, you'll find out that's a really weird view of what happens when Jesus comes into your life. You know, you'll, you open the scriptures, you will not find a single person who came to know Jesus, entered into a relationship with him because of his grace, and the major consequence of that was simply, I now attend a service twice a week where I listen to someone talk to me. It's not there. You know what you'll find, though? You know what you'll find in abundance? You know what you'll find a lot of? You'll find lots of people whose life was changed and living water started leaping out of them. They started going to people saying, come and see, come and see. They became pursuers of people. Their food became to do the work of the Father. And y'all, that's why I love this place. You see this all over the place around here. This is what we do when we invite people into our homes and our lives. This is what we do when we reach out to those who are in need or hurting. This is what we do when we coach our kids' ball teams and get to know the families. It's what we do when we love the people in our workplace to the best of our ability. It's what so many of you have done this morning when you give your time to teach God's Word and, and build a relationship with other people here. Y'all, it's what we do, and to the best of our ability, we welcome the people walking through that door who are thirsty and far from God. That's what we do. You know what? Show me someone who pursues people. I will show you someone who worships in spirit and in truth. And y'all, that's the punchline of this whole story. 
this is what it looks like to worship in spirit and in truth. It's an amazing story. It really is. But you know what's most surprising about the whole thing? It's not actually the words Jesus said. Y'all, everything Jesus said was really just a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's just repeating how God had always promised a relationship with him would be like. That's not the part that would have put their jaws on the floor. The part that put their jaws on the floor was two things. Number one, who his grace is available to. And number two, how his grace can change a person. You serve a God that said, I have to go to Samaria. I have an appointment with this five-time loser who is totally confused with who I am. And this is going to be amazing. My grace is going to change her so much. She will no longer seek her satisfaction in men and in other relationships. No, no, I'm going to change her so much that her food, her satisfaction will be to do my Father's will. You know, that's the offer on the table for you this morning. Instead of going through life, looking for another well, more fried chicken or whatever it is, you can be transformed into a well of living water in this desert of a world that we live in full of thirsty people. And what happen when you drink the living water? And listen, if you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, this morning we would love to talk to you about that. You can do that today. You drink the living water. You drop the bucket, repent of those buckets, and you pursue people. That living water can come leaping out of you. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.